Grant, Almighty God, that we who have been redeemed from the old life of sin by your baptism into the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, may be filled with your Holy Spirit and live in righteousness and true holiness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right. Just a couple of notes before we kind of begin with uh, kind of working our way through the catechism. Um, if you have an interest in um, being confirmed, uh, the bishop is making a visit, uh, Bishop Ryan, that is, the Sunday following Easter. Um, and he's going to confirm a number of people. And so I've talked to several of y'all about confirmation. Um, if you've been through a, a, a year, a cycle of um, our catechesis course, you're eligible to be confirmed. And um, so if, if we haven't talked and um, you'd like to talk about that, send an email to Stevie, our parish administrator, and she'll set up a meeting for us and we can talk about uh, what, what is confirmation and, um, and, and how to prepare for it. So um, just a note about that. Um, beginning next week, uh, Dr. Alex Fogelman is going to be teaching a few uh, of the sessions of catechesis in this class. I don't know if you know this, but Alex is the founder and director of the Institute for the Renewal of Christian Catechesis, which is this great um, new project that he and some others are overseeing, which is trying to resource churches for the work of, of catechesis and drawing especially on kind of ancient Christian catechetical practices and trying to adapt them in new ways uh, for today. And so he's doing, he's doing great work. Uh, he's appointed me as a research fellow to help him with this. And so we're working on kind of um, trying to reimagine what, what a renewed catechumenate might look like today. Um, so he'll be, he'll be teaching for the next few weeks um, and then I'll be, I'll be back and we'll, we'll try to finish up the catechism um, by the end of June. That's our goal, try to do, make it through the catechism over the cycle of a year. So we may be trying to push it a little bit, but um, let's jump back into things. So if I recall the last question that Dr. Guttaker took up last week was 218. Does that sound right to those who are there? Do you remember Taylor? Or 217? Like halfway through that last petition, right? Okay. Okay. So let's pick up with 218. So question 218 on page 80. And just to kind of situate us again, we're, we're walking through the the various petitions of the Lord's Prayer, and we've arrived at this final petition, but deliver us from evil. Um, so, so what does this mean, and what are we praying for when we ask God to deliver us from evil? Well, most of these questions uh, in this section have to do with the nature of evil. Um, so maybe just to, to review, question 210 asks us, you know, an easy question. What is evil, right? And... Uh, uh, Paul, I think, you know, deftly uh, tried to answer this without raising too many more questions uh, about the nature of evil, but it's a pretty succinct, succinct definition of evil here. The, the willful perversion of God's will, right? Evil defies God's holiness, violates his law, enslaves us to sin, and mars his good creation. And, and one of the important things that Paul drew out in discussing this question and the ones that followed that I just want to kind of remind us of, is that evil, uh, in, 
in the majority of the kind of uh, Christian theological tradition, it's always imagined not as a substance, not as a thing, right? But as the corruption of things, or we might say the privation of their goodness. This is the kind of classical teaching that comes from St. Augustine, uh, that evil is privatio boni, the privation of good, which may kind of seem abstract, but here's why this is important. Because um, a big question, uh, not just in kind of Christian, the history of Christian thought, but really all of philosophical thought is uh, whence evil, right? Um, If you believe in God, how do you make sense of the origin of evil in a way that doesn't hold God culpable of that evil? I mean, one answer to this is just to say that evil and good both come from God, right? And, and some have maintained this, right? That God is the sovereign source of all creation, both its good and its bad. Another answer would be to posit kind of two sources of all creation, a good God from whom pours forth goodness and all good things, and then a kind of lesser evil, you know, kind of deity, a demiurge or something like this, and that God is responsible for the evil things. And these two powers kind of exist in, in a kind of cosmic eternal battle, right? This is the, the Star Wars vision of the world, right? Uh, or maybe the more technical term is called Manichaeism, right? This idea that kind of the world exists between these two equal and opposite forces of goodness and evil in kind of conflict, right? Um, neither of those are the Christian uh, answer to this. The Christian answer to this is that God is good and only good, and the source of goodness, right? But there is the clear reality of evil. So how do we make sense of that? Well, really the only way, according to Augustine at least, to make sense of evil's existence and origins is to say that everything that exists, right, is created by God and thus good. So whatever is evil can only be a kind of disordering of that goodness, Right? In other words, it's like a parasite. Right? The kind of most fundamental thing about the world is that it's good. And then secondarily, right, we say it's fallen. Right? Actually, fallenness is kind of the, the most appropriate way of describing evil. Right? That God's good creation becomes disordered or, um, or distorted or corrupted. Right? But it's important because we sometimes will say things like this. Uh, will say that humans are uh, sinful by nature. And I I think what we mean is something like this, like humans are born with original sin. But actually that language, I mean, sometimes Paul uses that language, but when he's at as most precise, right, um, he'll he'll, he'll mean by that, right, that humans have a corrupted nature that the essence of our human nature is not itself sinful, right? It's good, it's created by God, right? But since the fall, we inherit a corrupted nature. But that's important, right? Humans aren't by nature like necessarily evil, right? If that were the case, right, then for us to be redeemed would be somehow for us to be changed into something else. But in fact, what God does, what grace does, right, is restore, as one of the prayers that we often use in the, lit- in, uh, the liturgy says, restore the dignity of human nature. Grace restores, it heals, right? It fixes, it reorders, right? It returns us to our natural state, right? It actually makes us 
um, able to live more naturally than we otherwise would. Now, grace does more than that too, right? It also lifts us up. It, it elevates us into a participation in the divine life. But it's important just to always keep that in mind, that evil is kind of parasitic on good. Now, here's why that's important, because as we then move into some of the kind of latter questions of this seventh petition, I think it will help us appreciate um, what it means to pray to be delivered from evil. Uh, I'll just give you the answer kind of uh, straightforward. Right? To, be, to pray to be delivered from evil is actually to pray to be given to goodness. It's not just kind of escape right, from bad things. It actually is what we're praying is for God to make us participants in his goodness, right? And this is actually going to demand a lot of us in healing the world of its sin and ourselves. Okay, so let's start then with question 218. This is on page 80. Question 218, how does God redeem evil? Though disaster, disease, death, and the evil deeds of his creatures may cause great harm and suffering, the almighty and all-wise God can use them to bring about his good purposes both in the world and in my life. Okay, so the language of redemption itself actually kind of, uh, in the New Testament, it, it carries with it this association of, of kind of restoration, right? That uh, God's good creation has been somehow kind of held in bondage by sin and in liberating it and kind of redeeming it or taking it back, God's actually restoring it to its original integrity as his creation. Now this question is going to push um, the problem of evil, we might call it, into a very kind of difficult area. This would be the area of the doctrine of divine providence. How is God sovereign or provident over creation given in its pervasive evil. And here's what, here's what we have to say, kind of some guardrails, because this is a mystery, right? The, the problem of evil is not something that can be solved, right? Uh, it's a kind of mystery to be, um, to be suffered in hope, right? But any sort of clear kind of analytical answer to the problem of evil I think for most of us, at least, it's going to be rather unsatisfying, right? Ultimately, to come to terms with evil is to live in, in hope and trust in God. Okay, so how do we make sense of the reality of pervasive evil, especially the way it manifests in things like disaster, disease, the suffering of innocence, right? Uh, pandemics, the, the seemingly kind of absurd levels of, of death and suffering in our world. Do we say that God is just kind of, yeah, we don't understand it, but um, somehow it actually is good. God's doing this to us for our own good. Um, we don't want to say that, right? Because there are problems with ascribing um, things that are evil of this way to the divine will. It makes God responsible, culpable for evil, right? God is good. God desires the health and flourishing and salvation of his creatures. He does not willfully subject them to suffering as uh, one of our prayers in the prayer, prayer book says. Okay, so God is not the one kind of like, uh, you know, kind of like hurting you, right? Uh, he's not the one who is uh, inflicting suffering on you. But neither is it quite right to say that 
evil, suffering, and death kind of exist, and God can't do anything about them, right? He wishes he could intervene, but he's just not powerful enough. Or maybe he is powerful enough, he's just not wise enough to do it. Or he is wise, but he's just not good, right? Uh, he would do something about evil, but he just can't figure out how to, how to do anything. Christians don't, don't believe that either. They believe that in some way what unfolds in history occurs under divine providence, under God's care, even though evil is not directly the result of God's will, say. All right, so these are the two kind of God guardrails here, right? God is not responsible for evil, but neither does evil kind of exist outside of his will and power and purposes. Okay, now how you work that out, exactly what God's relationship is to evil, that's the difficult work of philosophical theology, of theodicy, of these sorts of questions that theologians have wrestled with for many, many centuries. They're good questions. Um, They don't often bring answers. But for our purposes, I think, in a kind of course, you know, in catechesis, we don't necessarily need answers to the problem of evil. We need to know how to live faithfully within the conditions of sin, evil, and death in our world, right? And I think the best way to inhabit our sinful world, right, is by kind of holding these two things in mind, right? God's not the origin of evil, but it doesn't exist kind of outside of his purposes and power either. And in some mysterious way, God's actually able to take what has been wrecked and disordered um, and killed and restore and raise and redeem and make new out of it, right? Because that's ultimately the principle or the logic of salvation. It's new creation, which is not God saying, y'all wrecked this one too badly, let me start over with something else. Um, no, he actually intervenes to restore what we've wrecked by sin, right? Okay. Did you have a question, Taylor? You're starting to maybe ponder something. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And not just this, but I think of things in the Old Testament like God sending plague on the Egyptians as judgment. Or even the, in the Psalms, right? This, um, this sense, you know, the psalmist will, will say things, God, God, though you assail me, right? Though you afflict me, God right? Nevertheless, deliver me, right? So there seems, especially in the Old Testament, to be a sense that some of what we experience as suffering does come directly from God, either as punishment or like judgment or as an attempt to kind of restore God's people from their idolatry or from their their infidelity. So how do we think of those things? Well, again, I'm not going to have a great answer for this, just some guardrails for thinking about it. On the one hand, it's possible to recognize things like God sending plague on the Egyptians, not as uh, evil, but as justice and thus goodness. Now, 
already in saying that, I mean, you kind of feel a little bit icky, right? And saying that kind of like uh, the mass death of a people, right, could be God's justice. But I mean, at some point, right, God, we have to say that God, um, God is um, a God of justice, and sometimes that entails judgment, right? Um, and so, in fact, some things that may appear to be evil, in fact, might be good, though that is a mystery, right? And sometimes we may, we may not understand that. Other times what can happen is God can allow, say, suffering, evil, and death to kind of take its natural course, right, um, as a kind of judgment. So God may not be directly, say, um, uh, bringing about something evil, but may allow it, right? And this is a way of God, you know, this might be the case with Pharaoh, right? Um, in the Exodus story, we read this line often that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, right? Which is kind of troubling. Like, why does God force someone to be evil, it seems, right? But in fact, if you, if you read it carefully, you'll notice that that language is introduced kind of midway through the plagues. Actually, prior to that, we read that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And so whatever we say about God intervening in this kind of way, it doesn't seem to be against or in violation of kind of human will, right? Pharaoh's desires uh, to hold God's people captive and, and afflict them with suffering, um, they're his desires. He's, he's doing this, right? He's responsible. And yet God is also kind of sovereign in control. So again, this is like the mystery of divine and human will, and freedom, um, very complicated, but I think, you know, we want to have just some things. We have to say these things, right? God is not the, the origin of evil, nor does he willfully do evil, and yet uh, evil is not outside of his power and purposes and providence. So you got to hold that tension somehow. <laughs> um, yes. How about we go to 219 then? Um, question 219, from what evil do you seek to be delivered? I seek to be delivered from my own fallen inclination toward evil. I also seek God's deliverance from the devil, from the dangers of the day and night, from sorrow, sickness, and horror, from injustice and oppression, and from everlasting damnation. Okay. Now, I think the order here is actually important. Uh, say one quick word. Yes, absolutely, Bishop. It's really important you know how proud I am of you <laughs> and this diocese is of you and how proud I am of you. What you may or may not know about him is he's from my diocese in Illinois. Even it's though true. he wasn't there kind of the same way I was, he comes out of what we call the Diocese of Quincy where I was bishop for 15 years. And I'm very proud of you. Thank you I'm Bishop. proud of all of you for working with this because there are some folks who kind of think that being a part of a church, you bop in and you bop out. Well, you, you're bopping all the time, so I want to thank you. <laughs> See you later. Thank, Sorry to thank you, Your Grace. No, it's always, uh, it's always a, a great privilege to have a bishop come in and tell you to keep bopping. So. LAUGHTER <laughs> Thank you, Your Grace. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I think that's a good, good word to hear, just to be reminded. Uh, yeah, 
we're all we're all like really thrilled that um, Christ, the people of Christ Church, take so seriously the uh, uh, the doctrine, the teaching, the theology of this tradition uh, enough to show up on a Sunday morning to to walk through a catechism. So um, let's let's keep moving. So uh, this question: From what evil do you seek to be delivered? I think I was going to say the, the order here is important because um, often our first inclination in thinking about, or even praying about, God, say, delivering the world from evil, is to look, like, out there, you know? Or maybe to think about the, the television first. Okay, so we pray, God, deliver us from evil. Uh, and what comes to mind? Uh, maybe, like, you're thinking of, like, uh, war in the Ukraine. Uh, and you, you're thinking about the kind of horrors uh, of what's going on there, you're thinking about genocide, you're thinking about the evils, the great evils of the world, right? Um, all being committed by other people, right? Or maybe you look more kind of internally within your own, the borders of your own kind of uh, nation and you, you have particular people in mind that you're gonna pray for, for their deliverance from evil, right? Um, and all of that is right and good, right? But actually, the prayer for deliverance from evil um, begins like internally in the soul, right? That's why the first thing we say I seek to be delivered from is my own fallen inclination toward evil, right? I, I had a mentor who would always say that one of the kind of great problems that we're faced with in kind of our own day is that we want to try to make the world good and just without making good and just people, <laughs> including ourselves, right? Um, and so the work of, of participating in God's redemption of the world from evil, or deliverance, we might say, right? It, it always begins, it has to begin uh, with introspection, by looking in. But it, that's only where it begins, right? The work of kind of introspection and inward transformation always leads outward, right? Because we also pray for deliverance from the devil, from the dangers of day and night, from sorrow, sickness, horror, injustice, oppression, everlasting damnation. Right? It's a whole litany of things here. Right? Um, I think I just want to say that, right? That there's this twofold movement in praying for deliverance from evil. God, deliver me from my own sin, that I may participate in your own deliverance of your good world from its uh, bondage to sin. Okay, and then the final question here is 2.20. How does God deliver you from evil? Jesus has conquered the dominion of darkness and now grants me victory over sin and evil through the Holy Spirit. He transforms my mind and heart to see and oppose evil and gives me the power to overcome it. He gives me strength to endure my trials gracefully and may even remove them from me. The fight against sin, evil, and death, which is another way of, of just describing the Christian life, right? It's one of, of, of battle, right? Against the things that oppose God. Um, it's never a fight that we engage in out of desperation, as if the outcome of this kind of, uh, this, this war <laughs> ha is not yet been decided. I think Paul used this language last week, right? Um, what was it? That the Christian life, right, exists between, what, how do you put it? Between D-Day and V-Day, 
right? So like the, the war has already kind of been decided. It just hasn't been finished yet, right? But it's, it's, in, uh, it's, it's on a trajectory uh, in a certain way. That's what the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus means, is that the problem of evil actually has already been kind of worked out and resolved in a certain kind of way, not in a way that's existentially kind of satisfying yet, right? We still live kind of under the effects of evil, but uh, the power of evil actually has been exhausted, right? Um, why God allows it to still manifest its, its power in our world is a, is a mystery, and we, and we pray for deliverance from it, but in fact, evil already did the worst thing it could possibly do, which is to crucify God, and that didn't work, right? Um, so if evil's kind of done its very worst, right, and failed, uh, there's a kind of confidence that, that Christian life uh, lives in, right, uh, which is insofar as we come to be participants in Jesus, right, Par- participants in his life, death, and resurrection, um, no matter how, how bad evil can get, uh, how intense suffering uh, can be, um, it can't finally do, uh, it, it, it can't finally win, right? Which is not to say that uh, we're not going to die. We will. It's not to say that we won't suffer. We will. What it does mean, though, is that nothing, no suffering or death or evil, can separate us from God. That's what it would look like for evil to win, right? Is for evil to successfully separate us from God. And God will not let that happen. So that's the kind of confidence that we live and pray with in being delivered from evil, right? Now, it's okay to pray that the battle that's raging, even though, you know, the war's been decided, the battle rages on, right? It's okay to pray that God would just end the battle, right? Because, uh, no one wants to be in a war, right? Uh, you want out. You want resolution. And that's why we pray, right? Thy kingdom come. That's why we pray Christ return, right? Restore your creation, right? It's a kind of agony living in this evil age, right? But we don't pray that in a kind of desperation or um, despair, right? Uh, we say, Lord Jesus, come deliver us. But in the meantime, put me to work, right? And may uh, deliverance begin even, even with me. Okay. Any questions on, on evil um, and, and this petition before we kind of move on to wrap up this walk through the Lord's Prayer? Or final thoughts? Well, let's, let's just kind of walk through these last three questions then because, of course, we do, we end the Lord's Prayer um, with this doxology. I think I mentioned at the beginning the doxology. You know, if you look at the, the rendering of the Lord's Prayer in the Gospels, um, it ends with, you know, when Jesus gives it to his disciples, it ends with the line, and deliver us from evil. And then we have the, this line, the doxology, uh, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen, that's added on. Um, and, you know, part, part of the reason I think maybe I, I told you is just ancient Christians would pray this prayer and they just kind of felt icky about ending their prayer with the word evil, right? It's not a very good resolution to a prayer 
It ends on a downer, right? Uh, to say, deliver us from evil. And for evil to be the last word on your lips, you know, say before you go to bed at night, right? You don't want that, right? So you've got to find some kind of way of tying up the prayer a little bit. And uh, so this is what the doxology does. So what is the doxology of the Lord's Prayer? The doxology often added to the Lord's Prayer is, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. A doxology is a short phrase or hymn given glory to God. Okay, and then let's, um, let's just kind of go through these next two questions too, and I'll, I'll say a couple of things. So 222, what does kingdom, power, and glory mean? Mirroring the first half of the Lord's Prayer, the church rejoices that God is already reigning over all creation, working out his holy will, and hallowing his name in earth and heaven. And why do you end the Lord's Prayer by saying amen? By saying amen, which means so be it, I declare my agreement with the prayer, I unite with the faithful, and together we pray as Jesus commanded, believing that our petitions please the Father and trusting that he will hear and answer us. Okay, so just a couple of things. <clears throat> I wonder if you kind of have noticed this before that the doxology mirrors the first part of the Lord's Prayer. Right? We pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Those three things, the doxology mirrors, right? When we pray that thine is the glory, we're talking, this is God hallowing his name, making his name holy, right? An act of his own uh, manifestation of his glory, right? When we pray thy kingdom come, of course, that's exactly what we pray for at the, at the beginning uh, of the prayer, right? God's kingdom is his, right? It's not something that we're manufacturing, right? Thy kingdom come, then we pray here, thine is the kingdom, right? Just to make sure we get this straight, right? Ours is not the kingdom. We're not kings and queens in God's kingdom, right? We're servants uh, advancing God's kingdom. And then finally, the power, right? Thine is the power, um, which is why we're able to pray in this uh, third petition, thy will be done, right? Because uh, God's will has power. He's able to accomplish it in creation. And then finally, uh, you know, the ending to most prayers is amen, <clears throat> which is not just a, a kind of way of saying we're done now. It is a form of agreement of consent, right? It's actually really important that in traditions of common prayer like ours, we have uh, this affirmation of amen. Uh, you may have noticed this, the way in the liturgy uh, prayers will work is even when, say, the celebrant, the priest is praying a prayer, um, in bold type in the liturgy, it will say amen because the people always join in affirming the prayer. The celebrant uh, is always praying on behalf of the people, right? And so the act of saying amen is to kind of recognize this is our representative who's offering our prayers on our behalf, right? And so in the Lord's Prayer, and really in, in all prayer, uh, in saying amen, we're, we're recognizing that every act of prayer is a participation in a Catholic act of the whole church, right? Um, and more than this, right, not just are we kind of coming to affirm the prayers of all God's people, but we're actually coming to um, affirm or, or assent to Jesus' own prayer, right? This is Jesus' prayer, after all, that he offers to the Father. 
And it's not one that he ceases to offer to the Father, right? What do we learn when we, when we talk about the doctrine of the ascension of Christ, but that he continually intercedes on our behalf before the Father, right? Uh, how does he intercede? Well, this, may be a, this prayer, the Our Father, may be a pretty good indication of, of how he's doing that work, praying uh, to the Father on our behalf. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're entering into Christ's own intercession, eternal intercession with God the Father. Okay. We have now concluded the uh, exegesis of the Lord's Prayer. Um, and no doubt faster than probably is deserving of such a rich prayer. Um, but we do have a number of, of questions to follow, which we'll take up kind of the next week or two, um, that are going to think about the consequences uh, of trying to have the Lord's Prayer um, as a rule of prayer for one's life. Um, what might it mean for us to enter into um, a kind of rule of, of life or a rule of prayer? And, and so this is what we're, we're going to take up from question 224 on. Um, so let's start with 224. So what is a rule of prayer? A rule of prayer is a regular discipline by which I cultivate a life of prayer and grow to love and glorify God more fully. So this language of, of rule, uh, regula, uh, is not one that's used in every tradition, but uh, it is in ours, and in part it comes to us from the legacy of the Benedictine tradition. Um, St. Benedict of Nursia was one of the great founders of kind of Western monasticism, and one of his great gifts was to lay out for his followers, his monastic followers, a rule of life. Uh, you can read this rule, St. Benedict's rule, uh, and you'll have some idea of what it looks like um, to have an ordered life of prayer, of reading scripture, and worship. Um, Benedict um, has, a, has had great influence and in that Benedictine tradition on the Anglican tradition. I mean, in part because St. Uh, Augustine of Canterbury, the first Archbishop of Canterbury, in many ways, kind of the, one of the founding kind of figures of the English church, was himself a Benedictine monk. And with Augustine of Canterbury was injected into English spirituality, um, this Benedictine sense of trying to live according to a ruled form of life, of praying as a discipline, as a pattern, right, that is consistently throughout the day in certain kind of predictable ways, and thus trying to align one's life uh, with that rule of, rule of prayer. And so the Book of Common Prayer, right, which kind of emerges in the 16th century English Reformations, is in many ways a kind of tribute to that legacy, that Benedictine legacy um, of trying to uh, pray in a ruled way or a patterned or disciplined way. Um, what can hinder your regular prayers? My prayers may be hindered by many things, such as lethargy or loss, selfishness or sin, distractions or difficulties, or seasons of spiritual dryness. With God's help, a rule of prayer strengthens me to overcome all these. Okay. Um, one of the great gifts of the tradition of common prayer, um, and when I, when I use this language of common prayer, I'm of, I'm of course referring to this book, right? The Book of Common Prayer, but not, not just this book. There are many forms of common prayer. The idea of common prayer is that we have 
written prayers uh, that we all pray together. Uh, most importantly, the, the liturgy of Holy Eucharist, which we pray each Sunday, um, but also things like the Great Litany. This is a part of the tradition of common prayer. And maybe most significantly, uh, or, or what's the kind of most unique or distinctive feature of the Anglican tradition of common prayer, is this thing called the daily office in this book. So actually, I mean, let's open these, these prayer books. They're kind of laying around you. If you will pick one up, um, because I want to make sure that you just kind of are aware of this in the prayer book. Um, it's a great gift for anyone who desires a kind of rule of life. Um, I would say that any kind of successful rule of life um, will probably look to something like the daily office as a kind of foundational practice. So if you'll open up to page, um, I guess it'd be page nine where it really begins. You'll have this page called the daily office here. And what comes after it is a series of liturgies on page 11, daily morning prayer. On page 33, midday prayer. On page 41, evening prayer. And then finally, on page 57, Compline. And then actually after that, beginning on page 67, are forms of kind of shortened versions of these, family prayer, which can be really helpful, especially for those who uh, have young children who may not uh, find that they're able to sit down and spend 20, 25 minutes at the beginning of the day praying the office. Um, what are these things? Uh, what is this daily office? Well, uh, the history here is that Thomas Cranmer, the, uh, one of the great architects of uh, the English Reformation in the 16th century, was um, not the greatest theologian, admittedly. <laughs> he was a fine theologian. But, like, you know, if you're thinking about figures of the 16th century, people like Calvin and, and Luther and, you know, some of these great figures, um, Cramer is not, he's not out there. He's, he's fine, but he, he's, not, he's not super brilliant. But what he is brilliant with uh, is liturgy. He's, a, he's an absolutely brilliant liturgist. And what this means is that really the, the, the Anglican tradition that comes out of that English Reformation is always going to be one that centers on liturgy and prayer as kind of the chief sources of theology. Cranmer did not pen a, you know, magisterial uh, treatise or book like Calvin's Institutes, right? Uh, he did not put together a long catechism to define what Anglican belief was. He didn't really even write like a confession of faith, like the Westminster Confession or the Augsburg Confession. All these Protestant uh, traditions on the continent were doing such things. Instead, what Cranmer did was to draft a book of common prayer, at the center of which were these, was this daily office, this liturgy for morning and evening prayer especially. And what he does, in a kind of brilliant way, is he draws on uh, every liturgy and source of prayer that he knew, uh, which was pretty much every liturgy and source of prayer that existed. <laughs> his, his knowledge of the Christian liturgical tradition was comprehensive. 
and he draws together prayers and liturgies from uh, like kind of like ancient like indigenous English uh, spirituality uh, from the Roman liturgies, the Roman Catholic Church, from the Greek liturgies of the Eastern Church. Um, he draws all this together. He takes the liturgies um, from the monasteries. You know, these monks who had prayed a rule, of, a rule of prayer like seven times a day, right? And what he does is he takes those and he condenses them with these kind of prayers from old uh, combined in it. He condenses them into two, two prayers, two liturgies, one for evening and one for morning. And he requires, well, I think it's actually probably Parliament who required it, but, you know, he, he uh, requires every priest in England to pray these liturgies of morning and evening prayer every day in the church, publicly, right? And what this did was to make available space for people, ordinary people, on their way to work to stop in at their parish church, pray morning prayer with the priest, and then go to work, conduct their affairs, uh, to, on their way home, pop back into the church for evening prayer. And in this way, beginning and, and ending each day uh, in, in prayer, in the prayer of the church, in fact, right? And in this way, I mean, Cranmer's vision of the, was this. That Benedictine tradition, that kind of monastic tradition, is not just for an elite few who get to kind of go off uh, and live lives of quiet contemplation, whereas everyone else has to just kind of live mundane, ordinary lives. Uh, Cranmer gives to the people, to ordinary people, the liturgy of the monastery, in their own language and in a shortened way that they can participate in. It's really kind of a brilliant thing. And in part, it is one of the most effective means of bringing about uh, kind of spiritual transformation and regeneration in England. The, um, the philosopher Charles Taylor has a phrase for this. Uh, he, he refers to uh, things like this that are occurring in the 16th century, especially in the Reformations, as the affirmation of ordinary life, which is that... Uh, during especially these Protestant Reformations, there is a new sense, renewed sense we might say, that mundane, ordinary life of ordinary people uh, can be sanctified, can be made holy. That the work of being a cobbler or a farmer or uh, a carpenter or whatever it might be um, can be imbued with a kind of spirituality can be offered up to God as a form of worship. And one of the, the best ways to do that, to live in this sense of all work and all our deeds and activities are in fact done in the presence of God and offered to God as acts of worship, the best way to make sure that we kind of live into that is by beginning and ending each day in prayer. This is why we have a kind of rule of life like the daily office or other forms of, of ruled prayer um, to kind of structure our days in this way. But also for a second reason, and this is really, I think, what this question is getting at, because our lives of prayer can be uh, sorely hindered uh, by many things, most notably our sins. Um, but, you know, things a little bit less, um, uh, a little bit more ordinary, you might say, things like distraction uh, or tiredness, right, or lethargy or just spiritual dryness. 
what I tell people, especially people who kind of are, are coming into the Anglican tradition and, and kind of discovering this tradition of common prayer, is that for many of us, um, the reason why common prayer, my liturgy, is so uh, important is not primarily because we, we think that, you know, not like an elitist thing where like we've really found the right way to worship, right? Uh, and everyone else, uh, they're just kind of fumbling around the dark. Um, no, it's because we have entered into periods of our lives uh, where because of deep suffering or perplexity um, or apathy or just feeling the hiddenness of God, divine absence, we no longer know how or what to pray. And try as hard as we might, we might sit down, uh, you know, in, uh, uh, in the morning, say, and, and try to pray and just nothing comes out, right? We have nothing to say to God. Or maybe we're afraid if we started talking what we might say, right? And, and that's okay, I should say. God can handle... Uh, those sorts of prayers of lament and deep frustration and anger. Um, but the question becomes, what do you do when you, when you can't pray anymore, right? Um, the genius of the tradition of common prayer is to say that experience of, call it what you will, dryness or uh, divine hiddenness or um, lethargy, that is profoundly ordinary. It will happen to you if it hasn't already. Um, it's not surprising, and it's why we have a whole set of resources to help us through. Not just kind of words already written for us to pray when we can't, but also a, an activity, when I say an ecclesial activity of common prayer, where others can pray for us when we can't speak. I can't tell you uh, how, how many times I've actually seen this, whether it be on Sunday mornings or and praying, say, morning prayer with people, where people I know who are going through times of intense grief and frustration and, and anger with God, uh, who cannot pray, right, um, will still show up to morning prayer and sit there and weep while others pray for them and on their behalf. Uh, that's, that's what common prayer is really about. It's about the church praying, and us coming to participate in it. More than anything, common prayer uh, or a rule of prayer is not a technique or a tool. Uh, it is the life of God's church, which we come to participate in, right? Okay, so it's helpful uh, is what I'm trying to say, right? And if you haven't found that you need help in prayer, um, well, just wait, it will come. Um, Okay, question 226. What nurtures a fruitful life of prayer? My life of prayer is fed by the regular reading of scripture, practice of personal prayer, and corporate worship of God. The ancient threefold rule of the church encourages weekly communion, the daily office, and private devotions to shape this way of life. Okay, so we're, we're talking about a rule of life, and I've been talking mostly about how, say, the Anglican tradition has kind of laid out some, some baseline kind of uh, things that might structure a rule of life. Things like the daily office, things like um, the reception of Holy Eucharist on a weekly basis, 
Um, the prayer book has all kinds of other gifts for structuring this, um, this rule of life. Things like the lectionary, right? Which moves us either on a daily basis in the daily office or on a weekly basis in the liturgy through the reading of all of scripture, right? So not only is the, the kind of tradition of common prayer one of <clears throat> offering prayers to God, but it's ones of structuring our reading of scripture together uh, as an act of collective or ecclesial de- devotion. Um, all of these things are kind of pieces that are configuring a rule of, a fruitful rule of life, a rule of prayer, but there are other things that are important too, and I like that the, this question mentions things like private devotions and personal prayer. Um, because, look, liturgy's great. <laughs> I love it. That's why I'm an Anglican priest. Um, but if you uh, never speak a word of personal devotion and praise to God, you're missing out. Um, I'll, I'll tell this story. I know this is, this is being recorded and probably posted on the internet, but I'll still tell this story. That uh, in, in seminary, um, you know, I was part of this, uh, this uh, thing called the Anglican Episcopal House of Studies. It was a, a group of students in seminary together who uh, we were being formed uh, to be Anglican clergy. And so in addition to our normal seminary life, we would have daily morning prayer and weekly mass and um, groups of, of, uh, of spiritual accountability and these sorts of things. But there was this, um, this kind of tendency within the community of people who were, you know, kind of like ex-evangelicals who kind of discovered liturgy and realized that, like, you know, this is like the greatest thing uh, that God had ever given humanity. And actually, if you just did good liturgy, that was basically all Christianity was. And so uh, their point was to kind of like rid Christianity of any sort of kind of like, you know, personal, private, emotional experience and these sorts of things. Look, I, I get that. Like, you know, uh, I grew up in a tradition that was, you know, overemphasized the personal, the emotional, the emotive, all these sorts of things. But they swung way too far on the other end. And so <laughs> whenever one of them was, was leading morning prayer, you know, it would be the most dry, formulaic kind of mechanistic thing I've ever experienced. It was like, say it in a monotone kind of way, quickly, uh, so that you don't get too much emotion stirred up, right? Uh, We actually called these people uh, the Anglicans. Uh, (laughs) We had a name for them. Uh, So, and I love them, I should say, to any of them who may be hearing this. Uh, They were dear friends of mine, but Look, the, the life of ruled prayer, of common prayer, is not to be one of cold, dry, formulaic liturgy, right? The liturgy, uh, common prayer, is a, it's, it structures our prayer. And we can fill that structure with any number of things. In fact, even within, say, the liturgy of morning prayer, you might think of things um, that you might include that might kind of be special ways that you individually um, can express, express love and devotion to God. Um, I mean, there's a, prayer, there's a part in the liturgy that's intentionally given for, for the offering of, of, of personal prayers. You might think about how to fill that time um, with practices of prayer that are particularly meaningful. Um, 
there are parts in the, in the liturgy for song, right, for music. Um, the liturgy offers us all kinds of ways um, to insert the kind of creativity and um, individual gifts of a congregation or people, right? It's not meant to be repressive. In fact, what it's meant to do is to give those things a place, right, so that our worship doesn't just become uh, performances and our lives of personal prayer don't become consumed by our own emotions and feelings, but it welcomes them inside of a rule, right? That's the point, okay. Uh, let's take up a couple of, of questions on the place of Scripture in all of this. We have about five more minutes. So, because um, the, the place of Scripture in this rule of prayer and common prayer is, is essential. So, uh, question 227, how should the Holy Scriptures shape your daily life? I should hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by the sustaining power of God's Word, I may grow in grace and hold fast to the hope given me in Jesus Christ. This um, phrase to hear, uh, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures comes from a kind of famous collect in the Anglican tradition penned by Thomas Cranmer himself that we pray in, uh, in Advent that lays out a really kind of comprehensive way of thinking about the devotional life around scripture. And in fact, you can think about these, these words as describing almost like a step-by-step -step way of approaching the scriptures in one's devotional life. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. So, and this is what the questions are gonna address. How should you first hear the Bible? I should hear the Bible through regular participation in the church's worship, in which I join in reciting scripture, hear it read and prayed, and listen to its pro proclaim. Okay, so uh, when the prayer speaks about, when the, when the catechism speaks about hearing the Bible, it actually really means that. Hearing it read by other people to you. This is actually, you know, kind of in the Christian tradition, the primary way that people encountered Holy Scripture. I mean, just from the sheer reality that for most of Christian history, the majority of Christians could not read. They depended upon others for the hearing of God's word. And that was actually theologically significant, that kind of dependence on someone else in order to receive God's word, right? Uh, St. Augustine writes really beautifully about this, right? That it's actually, it's really important that we hear the word of scripture read in church, right? It's actually, I think, partly why, you may have noticed this, we have a lot of the readings on the screen and available for you to read, but um, especially when it comes to the gospel reading, um, we actually almost want to encourage you to listen more than read or follow along. Now, it's great to read too, I should say this, but there's something really neat about having the gospel book processed out here, having young children gather around, right, looking up at me when I read this book, like waiting to hear and receive the word of the Lord, right? It's, a, it's this sense that God's word is not first and foremost something that can be kind of mastered through our techniques of reading and exegesis, right? And dissected and pulled apart, right? First and foremost, it is God's word to us, right? 
and we hear it, and in hearing, all we can do is receive, right? And we depend on others to receive it by them speaking it to us, and thus we're reminded that we receive this word from God, right? It comes from without. So we hear the Bible, but then we also read it. So let's kind of end with this last question of 229. So how should you read the Bible? I should read the Bible daily, following the church's set readings, lectionaries, or following a pattern of my own choosing. Okay, hearing scripture is important, but so is reading. Um, there's a lot to say here, how to, how to read scripture. It's why there's like, you know, large industries um, of, uh, of people finding new ways to kind of like read scripture and uh, help you get through reading the whole Bible in a year or two years or these sorts of things. And all those are great. Um, there actually is a, a really old version of this. It's just called the lectionary of the church in which uh, in this book of common prayer, you can find it in the back, um, our readings for each Sunday and indeed for each day of the year are laid out. Um, and what might be more helpful about the lectionary, and just, you know, I'll just point you to it. This is like on, uh, in the 700s, like 717 and on, you'll have the lectionary laid out for uh, Sundays and then what's called the daily office lectionary, giving you readings for every day of the year. Actually, let's just briefly, if you want to look at this, say page 742, this is the lectionary for March, you have here um, the days of the month laid out and then readings from uh, the Old Testament and the Gospel for morning and a psalm, and then the evening a reading from another Old Testament passage and a New Testament epistle. And if you follow this lectionary and do the readings of morning and evening prayer each day, you will read vast amounts of scripture. Uh, like, you'll find it's, it's really amazing uh, how, how much of the scriptures you're actually consuming uh, on a daily and weekly basis. But even more than this, it actually, it runs in a kind of careful, deliberate way. So that's walking you also through the life of the church, uh, the church year, the life of Jesus, right? Okay. So uh, I'm going to leave it there for now. Um, and again, I just want to say one, one quick thing. I again, remind you, if you are interested in confirmation, Bishop Reed will be here the Sunday after Easter to confirm a number of people. If you have been through catechesis, uh, about a, a, the full year is what we hope for, or something close to that. Um, if, you've, if, you're, if you've done that, you're eligible for confirmation. Um, if you're interested, you can send an email to stevie at admin at christchurchwaco.org, and we can set up a conversation to talk about uh, what that might, might look like. Okay. We'll leave it there and we'll begin worship in just a few minutes.